books and reading at their very best are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably appreciate a good book. You can pick up a paperback or read a digital copy on your e-reader whenever you have spare time. But imagine if you didn't have the ability to see the words on the page. Blindness doesn't make a person any less of a book lover, but it sure does make reading them more complicated. We assumed that technology would make things easier for people with visual impairment, and while it can help, it can also complicate things. Even recording our podcast took on unique challenges when we realized that one of our guests wouldn't be able to read the questions we sent in the same ways that our former sighted guests did. When there was a snafu with recording and we thought to text our guests, we had to remember that the text might have to then go to audio format. How long would that take? Was that immediate or was there a delay? Would the remote recording technology pick up not only our guest's voice, but also the voice dictation from the computer at the same time? Though sighted, Carrie and I were definitely blind to some of the complications that life with visual impairment can mean when it comes to the world of reading. Our guests this week, Gary Mudd and Jama Hawkins from the American Printing House for the Blind, generously recorded with us twice to work through complications. Gary, who became blind at the age of 12, has recently retired from his role as Vice President of Government and Community Affairs, and Jama is the National Prison Braille Director. Gary and Jama talked to us about how Braille books are produced, as well as many other products that help visually impaired students be successful, how Braille production programs in prisons produce Braille books for students, but also create newfound skills and confidence in inmates, and how one blind mother's desire to read books to her sighted children helped create the Braille's Tales program in coordination with Dolly Parton's Imagination Library. We have two guests this week on our show, and they are both representing the American Printing House for the Blind, which is located in Louisville, and it's kind of a hidden treasure. I think a lot of people forget that it's here, but I've visited, and it's a really interesting place. So they're going to tell us about some of the things that the American Printing House for the Blind does. We've got Gary Mudd, who is the recently retired VP of Government and Community Affairs, And we also have Jama Hawkins, who is the National Prison Braille Director. So thanks to both of you for joining me this morning. Thank you. Just tell our listeners a little bit about the American Printing House for the Blind and its history here in Louisville. We started in 1858. And first, we were making tactile books. And then after 1879, there was an act of Congress passed called the Act to Promote the Education of the Blind, and APH was designated as the official administrator of that act. And what we do with it is that we register all the students nationwide and the territories each year who have a visual impairment. Now, there's a 
formal definition to that, which I won't get into, but it's basically 2200 or less in the better eye with the correction. And then we do register those students, and then we research and develop and manufacture educational aids that students and teachers use in the classroom nationwide. And those products that are produced through the act are free to the students and teachers. So, you know, as children have started preschool, maybe at three and four years of age, do you ever have people, like do hospitals where babies, if they have a vision issue that's identified as newborns or very early on, do they contact you? We try to be involved in their education from as early on as we possibly get notice. Yeah. Those kids can register with us as well. But oftentimes they don't realize that until they get into like a public school system or a residential school, unfortunately. But there is uh, an organization in town, Visual Impaired Preschool Services, who serves that particular population, but they also use our products. So can you give us some numbers to give us an idea of how many people the American Printing House for the Blind, through the work that you all do, what does that look like in terms of numbers of people? The working at less than college level, there are about uh, almost 57,000 students who meet that federal definition of blindness. Now, a lot of what you do is geared towards school-aged children, but adults also utilize a lot of your all's products? They do, especially uh, some of our products that overlap into the adult population, like laptop uh, note takers, things like that. We have a couple of recent products like Code Jumper, which teaches coding to students. It's, it's designed for seven to 10 year olds, but it can be used for adults as well because there's such promise for employment in uh, computer coding. So there are a lot of products that adults can use as well. Now, adults can register with us if they're working at less than college level for, I believe, 12 weeks in a program each year. So someone who has lost their vision, wants to learn Braille, they're taking a Braille course, they could be at any age and register with us if they're in that program for 12 weeks. A number of years ago, my family visited the American Printing House for the Blind for a tour through the Cultural Pass, and it was really interesting to see the process of how Braille products are made. Can you explain to our listeners the process of transcription and, and how that's done? Well, the process has changed over the years, and we have electronic files now that are called NIMAC files. We have certified transcribers that use Braille software to transcribe and manipulate the print and the format of the print into Braille, which creates a good flow for the student. We also have a proofreading department, which consists of one blind person who is the proofreader and one sighted person who follows the copy, follows the print. We have graphic designers who create any tactile graphics required and they coordinate with the transcriber on that particular project to ensure the correct page numbers, good flow of information, etc. And then it is sent to production where it is embossed on very large machines, which would be print. It's printed on embossers and the dots are raised. 
They're raised on both sides of the paper, and we have several of those. So we have mass production going on. So you mentioned the graphics. If something is in like a, a math book or a social studies book, you know, maybe like a map, are those going to be raised? I'm thinking about for a person who's sighted, if they look at a map and it shows rivers or mountains, is that kind of what those graphics might look like to be raised to indicate what those things are? We try to create them as closely as we can to, to what print provides. However, there are a lot of busy things in maps that aren't needed. Mm -hmm. So transcribers have to make good decisions and sometimes that requires them to go to the end of the chapter and read the questions uh, that are going to be asked about that. And you want all the information in the map that the child needs, but you do not want a lot of busy things that they don't need. So I think the main thing in a tactile graphic is that it needs to be more clarifying than confusing. Mm. So for instance, if you had, and I won't bring up politics today, but <laughs> if you had a map of the United States and each state was either a Republican or Democrat, okay? So all the child needed to know was, is it an R state or a D state? you would make a key and Republican would be a certain shape or the letter R. Mm. Uh, Democrat would be a certain shape or the letter D. You would put all the states in, but you would put a D or an R. You wouldn't need the rivers, you wouldn't need landmarks. You might put the state capital in if it's a history book and you're studying that. So there's a lot of discernment that goes on mm. with tactile graphics. Say you have a map for a person who can see in the book, you might be able to put more information on one map for a sighted person, whereas for a visually impaired person, it might make more sense to have several maps that show the different things rather than trying to put all of that information into one map. Yes, and a lot of times, especially in history or the study of geography, well, if you think about it, Carrie, for a second, you can do so many different things with print. You have different colors, you have different shades, you have dotted lines, solid lines, and arrows and things like that that can be, like Jama mentioned, can be busy for a person who is reading with their fingers. Even if you have to break the map into three separate pieces, we try to, to make it simpler to where it doesn't confuse. One of the statistics I'd like to throw out at you, and it's been proven that 80 to 90% of learning has some visual component. So that leaves us quite a gap to fill with the products and textbooks that we make. When you talked about the visual aids that might be in a book, so say, for example, if you have a math book that has a graph or something like that, so those kind of visual aids that are in a book, those can be translated into Braille as well? Those are made as tactile graphics and any map in a geography book are made as tactile graphics. They're made as raised lines in the shape of whatever you're studying as well as pre-calculus, geometry, algebra, all of those things. Everything that is visual, lines, and requires the student's knowledge of that to answer the questions in the book and to learn. Those are raised as tactile graphics and they are inserted into the book where they fall in print.
I think as a sighted person, like you don't know what you don't know. So I think for myself, I kind of had an assumption in my head that people who have visual difficulties could just listen to audiobooks or just have their computer read them text. But it sounds like certain areas of study, I guess, there really is a need to have a lot of those graphics in order for the content to make sense. Well, I think, I know we'll be going on to technology, but audiobooks are a good assistant, but Braille is what makes children literate, period. Just like your kids, I'm sure they have tablets, they have audiobooks, they have all of these things, but they have to learn to read and write. And so Braille is where that comes in. The Braille, the tactile graphics, this all makes the child literate. The technology involved just makes their job easier, the learning easier, as it does with sighted students. It's not much different. You learn how to spell, you learn how to a sentence is structured, you learn what a paragraph is, how it's placed on a page, headings, things like that in Braille that, that you need. You can't listen to those things. How would you spell pneumonia? So the English language is quite difficult when it comes to, to the spelling thing. So it sounds like the goal is for every child to learn Braille so that they have that basic foundational knowledge that's going to be required for them to increase their fluency and learn. Is that accurate? If it's appropriate for the child to learn, because a lot of kids, probably eight out of 10 kids that are registered with us have some useful vision. And if it's good enough to read print, then it may be large print or it may be magnified somehow, but they don't need to learn Braille just because they're registered with us and meet that federal definition. If print works for the student to learn, then we're all for that. But if Braille is more appropriate, then yes, that's definitely literacy. So the determination of that, is that something that you all help families determine what the need is? Or is that something that's done, you know, like their doctor would be able to answer that question? We have products that teachers and other administrators use to evaluate the vision of a child and what their most appropriate learning media would be. So I'm curious, again, other than knowing what Braille is, one of the questions we had was, like, is learning Braille and learning to read, are those two sort of separate cognitive processes? What does learning reading through Braille entail? Well, I would say that it depends on the child, but mostly if a kid is starting school who is a Braille reader, then they would be taught Braille just like you would be taught to read and print. I was sighted until I was 12. I already knew how to read print, but when I went blind, I didn't know how to read Braille, so I had to learn, and that, in that case, would be separate. But for the most part, kids just learn how to read Braille who need to learn how to read Braille just like any other child. We have curriculum that teachers use to teach Braille as well. Okay. And I think I agree with Gary on that. I don't think that in special situations like Gary, who had to learn a different reading media at 12 years old, otherwise, Braille kids are just like sighted kids in that they start feeling the dots, they learn their ABCs, they learn their letters, 
then they start putting those letters together to form words, then they go to school like every other kid. Sighted kids pick up books and they start making up what's in them because they can't read yet. They learn their alphabet, they learn their numbers, then they start putting those letters together to make words. So I don't think that they learn that much differently. So let's talk about some of the the programs that the American Printing House for the Blind has uh, and some of the services related to books and Braille. So, Jamin, let's start with you. You are the National Prison Braille Director. So tell us a little bit about what that program is and how it works. I collaborate with vision officials from different states and also their Department of Corrections. So, you know, the vision world is an island. The Department of Corrections is an island. Neither island knows anything about the other, nor should they. So my job is to step in, work with the Department of Corrections on who we would need, what kind of person you want in the program. I work with their security on what they will allow in the prison, and I work with the vision officials on how we're going to coordinate all this. So we all come together as a team. And, you know, we set up prison Braille programs. We currently have 43 programs in 29 states. When somebody, an inmate, becomes part of this program, what types of things are they doing? Well, a lot of times they're supplying their state's Braille needs, whether that is worksheets, whether it's textbooks, whether it's tactile graphics. And they also work for other agencies, they tend to be housed under two different umbrellas, either under an education umbrella or under the industries umbrella. And industries in the Department of Corrections is a business and it's there to make money. So in that case, you know, they are quite the production unit and a lot of them contract with APH to do textbooks and those tend to be the precalculus books, the algebra books, because they have those certifications and that knowledge. So I, I guess I'm envisioning like that there would be a, a separate room or area of the prison. Like I'm picturing machines and like running off copies and, and binding books. Is that accurate or is it more computer based? Well, we have Braille software now. And so the Braille software makes transcribing much more efficient and it gives the inmate good computer skills. So if a prison will allow computers and there's no internet access, that's where the security comes in. We work to purchase those, and yes, it's in a specific room designed for that. And I'm usually involved with corrections to go in and take a look at that area and say, yes, this would work well, or no, we don't want it next to the carpentry shop where you're using a (laughs) chainsaw all day. We recently put one in in Tennessee, and like you said, you don't know what you don't know. And so they put their Braille program right next door to a call center, and that didn't work, and it wasn't going to work. So they agreed to put in a, a very nice firewall between those to where both sections are now soundproof. So do the inmates go through, because I assume, you know, they don't know until they're allowed to become part of this program. Do they go through a a class or a training process so that they can learn about Braille? Is, Is that part of the process with the National Prison Braille Program? Yes, you have to be literary certified in Braille. 
and that's through the National Library of Congress. So that's a national certification, pretty much a worldwide certification, that they can use in any state when they are released. So that's a good thing. Then they go on to a format certification because students navigate differently and Braille students need consistency, just like anybody else. If the vocabulary words are at the bottom of the page, that's where they need to be in every chapter. So the format certification is very important. Then they go on to what we call the NIMA certification, which is math. And it's very difficult, but you have built your knowledge on that literary certification, then your format certification. They go on to get the NIMITH, which qualifies them to do algebra, geometry, calculus, pre-calculus, and there are also music certifications. So what have you seen from your experience as the director of this program? Obviously, because they're helping to create Braille products, it helps visually impaired people, but have you seen that it, that it helps uh, inmates as well? Oh my goodness, yes. You know, I think many times people are oppressed when they go to prison and they have not been raised in a home that promoted growth or intellectual well-being. So they feel worthless and are told they can't learn, they'll always be not worth much, blah, blah, blah. But just about every place I go, and it always sticks out to me, uh, California especially, at Folsom, I've been going out there for probably 15 years. And, you know, the guys cried, and they were as tall as the door. They're very big out there. And when you they come at you, it's like an oak tree. It's shade, you know. <laughs> and you're thinking, wow, this guy's getting bigger and bigger. And they cry, and they told me, you know, Jama, I sat in a cell for 20 years angry and sad, and when I touched my first dot of Braille, it started to heal me. And I think the whole point of Braille and the whole point of these programs is that they're doing something for someone else to make a difference and especially children. So we have, you know, men's programs, we have women's programs, and it doesn't really matter where I go. When I go in, every single time there's one person or two people that come up and they tell me the very same thing that I didn't realize I could learn this and now that I know I'm taking college classes, I'm taking anger management, parenting classes, it really makes them want to be a, a better person and a well-rounded person. Carrie, we work uh, with the Kentucky Correctional Institute for Women out in Pee Wee Valley and I remember the first couple of years uh, after they had learned Braille, a lady said, this is the first time I've been successful at anything. Let me ask you about uh, one of your programs that sounds really cool. And I believe these are related to the books, Jama, that you sent us to show us as examples. American Printing House for the Blind has a program called Braille Tales. Could you explain to our listeners what that program is? And I believe it's, it's in a partnership with Dolly Parton's Imagination Library. Explain that to me. Well, I'll do a little history, and Jama can talk about it. She works with them still. But we, back in 2008, were approached by a lady from Tennessee who was a mother, totally blind, had sighted children, and she asked both the Dolly Parton Imagination Library and APH if there could be some cooperation so that 
a blind parent can read to a sighted child, a sighted parent could read to a blind child. So we worked together over several years. Suzette Wright up in our research department worked with David Dotson, who is the uh, executive director of the Dolly Parton Imagination Library. The lady in Tennessee who was the blind mother knew about the program in Tennessee. At that time it was only in Tennessee. It hadn't grown to what it is today. So that kind of started the, the talks between APH and Dolly Parton Imagination Library. So what we have agreed to do is to do six books a year, one every other month in Braille and print. Obviously, we get the books through the Dolly Parton Imagination Library because they can purchase at a much lower rate than we could Penguin Books, Penguin Publisher. And then JAMA works with KCIW. We actually have a small group of ladies at KCIW that are in the Braille program, and they do those books. So it's the clear labels laid over the print words. And we'll have pictures of the books that you sent us on our Facebook page so that listeners can see what that looks like. Because prior to seeing them, I don't think I really could picture what that looked like. I, I really had no context for it. So you, you had mentioned that the mother who got this ball rolling was blind. So, so why is this important, having these labels on the, on the Braille Tale books? Well, I think it's important because everybody's children, sighted children, when they're small, they get storybooks off the shelf and they make up their own stories and follow the words even though they can't read and see the pictures and all those things. So, you know, it kind of goes back to learning where you ask, is that two separate processes or is it one process? We're giving the baby or a blind parent or grandparent the opportunity to read. And so the children are from zero to five or six years old. And so, you know, most of the time they can't read yet, but they're feeling those dots knowing that those are going to be their ABCs. So it's really just like any other child. If you think about it, kids who are sighted see print all around them every day, from the cereal box to the signage on the roads. So that becomes part of what they're going to be doing. They know they will read print. And there are too few books in Braille for kids mm -hmm. this age. So we are trying to make a dent into that child who will be using Braille for the rest of their lives by giving them these six books a year and they can keep them and build their own library. And I, I know for myself, I have three kids and from the time they were born, I was holding them and reading books to them pretty much every night from the time they were newborns. And that's a really important part of not just literacy, but also the establishment of those close relationships between parents and their children. I, I think personally think one of the best ways to, to build that relationship. And so I guess if a visually impaired parent, you know, if, if they don't have books that they can read to their children, that can be a really important loss if they don't have those books. Yeah, I did that with my own kids who are sighted. I read Braille, but there were very few Braille books that were appropriate for that age group. So we're trying to help with that. 
with the books that through the partnership with the Imagination Library, if parents get those six books a year, if they decide then I want other books, are, are they able to get those through like the American Printing House for the Blind's website? Are other books available to them to purchase if they decide they want some? Our primary focus, I guess, is with the kids who are K through 12, working at less than college mm -hmm. level, making their textbooks, because that's it's a job in itself. Mm -hmm. There are other organizations, a few other organizations that produce Braille for kids in the pre-K age range, but not very many, and too few, yeah. and so we're trying to fill that gap a little bit better. So what are some of the other adaptive technologies that the American Printing House for the Blind develops? So we had noticed that there's an app that you all have on your website called Braille Buzz. Tell us a little bit about Braille Buzz and other technologies you all have that help people. Well, we have probably in the neighborhood of 1,000 different products, including Braille curriculum, which I mentioned earlier, but also all the way up to computer note-taking devices. We have two recent products that we have worked with another organization to produce. It's a 40-cell refreshable braille display with a QWERTY keyboard and then a, a chameleon, which is a braille keyboard with 20 cells of refreshable braille so that students can download books they can read them on this refreshable braille display and take notes and do most of the things that your laptop computer does. Except one has a QWERTY keyboard, one has a braille keyboard. So those are a couple of our most recent. I think I mentioned earlier about the Code Jumper, uh, which is our early product that we have for kids who are seven to 10 years old to learn how to code because there are many jobs available and we're trying to get more kids qualified to be those programmers or coders. We have all kinds of curriculum. As you know, being blind or visually impaired causes a child to have unique learning needs. They're going to be using their hands to read. They're going to be listening more than your average child. So we try to make the tactile learning experience the best way we can with products. We have researchers in our building that research what is needed and what we can do to fill that need. So for all of those products, you mentioned, Jama, like having a blind person who's doing proofreading and quality control. Is that a process, I guess, that happens for all of your products to make sure that, you know, if a sighted person is working to create something for a visually impaired person, they might make assumptions that aren't going to work. So is that pretty typical for, for the products that you all make? Well, the proofreading department is for educational materials. So that's for textbooks, tests, those kinds of things. But yes, every product that we create goes through not only proofreading, it's transcribed inside the building, it goes through proofreading, but it also goes through field testing with teachers and students and parents to get 
feedback back on the product of this worked, but we could do this differently and we could enhance this, we could make this better. So there's a quite a large accountability process that goes into our product. We have probably, I'm, I'm guessing here because I haven't checked lately, but probably 20 to 25 folks in our research department who that's their job is to check to see what is needed, what other products that other companies are making that we don't want to make because we try to, to not duplicate what's already out there. So they do a lot of research before the product is ever designed. One of the things, like I mentioned, my family had gone to APH through the cultural pass several years ago. Could you tell listeners a little bit about what that tour, I guess, or what that visit is like? What are some of the things that they would see at uh, the American Printing House for the Blind? Because I just found it fascinating. You all have so many examples of technologies that unless you see them, you don't think that there's a need until you go and sort of immerse yourself and see what the need is. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Of course, we as lots of other organizations aren't doing tours right now during COVID, but on a regular day, which I hope we get back to, we have two tours, organized tours at 10 and 2, Monday through Fridays. And what you see is uh, an example we first go to our display room where we have lots of products on display that we try to demonstrate and show the tourists what we do and how we do it. And then we go through uh, Braille and the production of Braille from the transcription to the production on the embossers back to proofreading. Proofreading makes all the corrections. So that Braille process is demonstrated. Uh, we also have large print for those students who use large print and where we modify the print book to be more high contrast, I guess, easier to read than your small print textbook. And then we go through educational aids, which many of our products are in kits at, that teachers can use with a student. And we go through those educational aids. We go to our recording studios. We have 12 recording studios where we contract with the National Library Services that Jama mentioned them earlier. They're the, you've heard of talking books. That's what is commonly known. And we produce a lot of the talking books for the National Library Service in Washington, D.C. And then we uh, end up in the museum. We have a museum for the field of vision and we have all kinds of historical pieces from the early tactile book of 1794 in France. Could be wrong on that oh date, gosh. but we have everything from Stevie Wonder's practice piano that he used at the Michigan School for the Blind to Helen Keller's archives, which we recently acquired on display. Yeah, it was fascinating. And so I hope that we can get COVID under control sooner rather than later yes. so that people can visit because it was one of my favorite places that I've visited. You know, because a lot of people go the Science Center and, you know, some of the things that people are going to go to anyway, families are going to take their kids to those places. So it was super interesting for me and my kids. So how do blind and visually impaired people 
access APH products and services and resources? And are there any local organizations that you all tend to work closely with to ensure that children who need Braille products can can get them? I guess the easiest answer I can think of is that a lot of the products are accessed through our website or through teachers or people who are working in the vision field, whether they're administrators or teachers or parents who are interested in finding products for teaching their their child. We advertise, of course, especially in periodicals and things like that, that are related to to the field of vision. We have a professional organization that represents teachers and parents and anyone who wants to join the Association for the Education of the Blind and Visually Impaired. We call it AER for short, thank goodness. We are involved in whatever way it's necessary to reach the child and get those products in their hands. Do you all ever have people just on their own contact you all with with questions or, or do they generally tend to, to go through other avenues rather than directly contacting you themselves? Oh, absolutely. We have a customer service department that communicates with people daily on whether they're recently going blind or our early child or of a parent. We talk to them all day, uh, every day. We get calls. It's just amazing. I know from us trying to record this, it's really made me realize how much I take for granted or how I think things are simple but they're only simple because I'm sighted. I know we, this is our second go round with recording because I know for myself, I think, oh, technology makes things simpler. Well, in some cases it does, but we had trouble with some of the recording strategies we were trying to use because there's some complications when the computer is reading to you when you're trying to record. So it's been really I guess eye-opening, that's a terrible pun. I didn't intend that. But it's been very, it's been... (laughs) That's uh, a fine phrase. (laughs) We use it too. All right. Well, you all have provided such great information about the American Printing House for the Blind. We really appreciate you taking time to to share that with our listeners. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. So I am fortunate that I am able to join Carrie and Jama and Gary for this section of our episode today. So Carrie, let's start with you. What are you reading? So I just finished last night a really fun graphic novel that actually you had tagged me on, I think on Facebook or something. Um, Well, I'm glad one panned out because I tag you in a lot of things and... (laughs) <laughs> Most of them are probably crap. So <laughs> sometimes it's a little hard to keep up with what you tag me on. I'm sure there's some that I have not read. Okay, so it's a graphic novel and it's got Carrie will love this written all over it. It's called Katie the Cat Sitter and it's by Colleen A.F. Venable and Stephanie Yu is the illustrator. So it's a graphic novel. It is about a girl who's in middle school. Her name's Katie. And she is wanting to go to summer camp. And she lives in an apartment 
building with her mom. So she puts a poster out because she wants to earn money. So she tries to help some of the apartment dwellers carry their their groceries up like all the flights of the steps and she fails miserably at that and then one of the other options on the flyer says that she'll water plants well she ends up killing all of her neighbor's plants (laughs) (laughs) what happens is she ends up sort of falling into this cat sitting job Now, the beauty of this cat-sitting job is that she is cat-sitting for her upstairs neighbor who has 217 cats. Oh my gosh. She's a cat hoarder. (laughs) She is. And the funny thing is these cats, cats are unlike any type of cat that I have ever met because they all have these unique skill sets. So for example, one of the cats is a a computer guru who can order pizza or whatever you need to have ordered from Amazon. This cat handles all the computer stuff. And then there's another cat. uh, So like if you think about in a museum, how they might have that grid of laser lights that's hard to get through, right? So like think about Mission Impossible or some movie like that, some spy movie. Well, there's one of the cats who has this knack for getting through laser light grids. So you come to find out that the upstairs neighbor with her 217 cats, she sort of has a a backstory, a secret life. And I won't get into what that secret life is, but having these 217 cats who have all these amazing skills, and they're also, Katie is babysitting them, they're chaos creators, which is not unusual because cats can be that way. But these cats do things like steal another neighbor's couch. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so it's not your typical chaos creation, maybe getting into and licking the bowls that you leave in the sink and don't put in the dishwasher. We're not talking about that type of chaos creation. So if you love cats... And, and you like graphic novels. I highly recommend this book because it is funny and it's just great. I mean, it's just a perfect, fun book. So would you say that the target age audience is like middle grade, but obviously it's fine for anybody? Or what do you think? Yeah, I would say. But, you know, really, I would say probably down even third grade. Because part of the story is that... This girl, you know, she's trying to earn money. She wants to go to camp. Now, as the story progresses, this friend that is at camp and they've been sending each other postcards, they sort of have not a falling out, but sort of a a distancing between them. So it's a little bit of a coming of age type, you know, I mean, everybody gets to that point where they have somebody who's like their best, 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 best friend. And then, you know, a lot of times, that relationship changes. So that is part of the story, but the main part of the story is the cats and this neighbor and this neighbor's secret life. But the side story is the friendship. But I I would say, you know, third grade up to age 47. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, I saw on Goodreads that you were reading that and I was looking and that author's name sounded familiar. And one of her other graphic novels is actually one that's on my TBR. I think it's called Kiss number eight, but it is a more of a like a young adult graphic novel, but it looked interesting. Yeah, I put that one on reserve at the library because after reading this one, I was like, okay, I'm in. <laughs> she sold me. <laughs> I'm into reading her stuff now. Uh, Jamer, Gary, would you like to share what you all have been reading? 
Well, I am presently reading a book that I really like, and it is not what I normally read. I wow, normally I read murder mysteries, you know, because I'm in prison so much. But this book is called Where the Crawdads Sing. It's very good. It's very good. It's about a little girl that is growing up in the swamps of Louisiana, and her family leaves her and she survives in these swamps and her life and how she learns how to read and you know friends that come by and bring her school books she doesn't go to school and so I'm only about halfway through it but it really caught my interest from the get-go and I, I'm enjoying that. I've been at the printing house for going on 35 years most of my reading was for work during those years didn't do much recreational reading, but I just finished uh, a book. My uh, granddaughter is an avid reader, and she has read <laughs> books that I wish I had read. But I, I do this, I read a book recently that uh, was written for early teens, and that's what she is. It was called Same Sun Here. And uh, I just wanted to, to see what that age group was reading so that I could talk with her about it. And it was a very interesting book about uh, uh, a child in eastern Kentucky, uh, Appalachia, and then uh, a child in New York City became pen pals, and they would write letters back and forth talking about their lives. I enjoyed that book, and even though it was for preteens or early teens, it was uh, well written, and, uh, and I liked it. And, and now that, that you're retired, hopefully you'll have more time to read if that's what you choose to do with your time. And that's one of the things I have chosen to do, my time, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for sharing those. Amy, what have you had <laughs> well, going on? I recently, with a, another friend who's into YA lit, and I've not read a huge amount of YA lit, but I enjoy it. So she and I started sort of a buddy read that we're going to read one like every six weeks or so. It's kind of loose. You know, it's not a concrete thing like, you know, a date by which we have to read it or anything. It's just whenever we get it done. And a couple other friends have joined in on it. But the book that we're reading right now, and I just finished it like 20 minutes ago, is <laughs> called uh, Truly Devious by Maureen Johnson. And this was published in 2018. It's a murder mystery, basically. It's a murder mystery that's set at a private boarding school called Ellingham Academy. You know, there's a whole genre of books. Like, there's some people who just really like books about boarding schools. Did you know mm -hmm. that? Anyway, yeah. so this and fits into that. there are a lot of those books. There are a lot of those books. This one has a dual timeline. So the older timeline, back in the 1930s, an American billionaire decides to move to the mountains of Vermont to build a mansion uh, as well as a school for the best and brightest high school students where they can attend free of charge. But the billionaire's wife and daughter are kidnapped, ransomed, and the wife is murdered and the child is never found. And an anarchist at the time is charged and convicted. But most people assume that he's really just the fall guy because the thing is they had sent message in the mail several days before the kidnapping that's done like in magazine letters do you know what i'm saying like where they yeah. cut out letters yeah. and they it's like a riddle and they sign it as truly devious so that that's the name of the book and that's where that name comes from is that's how they sign this letter well this anarchist who they convict his grasp of english is very minimal 
So that's one of the reasons why a lot of people think that he's not really the person who did it or he's the fall guy, right? right? So the case has been unsolved for decades. So then we have the modern day story with our protagonist, Stevie Bell, and she is accepted at the school as a student. And all the other students have special talents, like they're novelists, engineers, artists. And her special ability is that she's a true crime aficionado. So she spent her childhood reading Agatha Christie and all kinds of other mystery movies and books. And she listens to true crime podcasts. And she taught herself how to pick locks. And her goal is to figure out who committed the crime all those years ago. But there's another crime that's committed soon after school begins, and she has to put her talents to work. And this has a very Agatha Christie feel to it. So you have like a group of people sequestered in an isolated place, you know, up on this mountain in Vermont. And so the perpetrator is most likely someone that's among them. This book was a fun escapist read. The school in rural Vermont is very atmospheric and you get the sense of it like it's sort of a, an outdoorsy bohemian version of Hogwarts, but much smaller. They're probably only maybe 50 students, but you know, there are houses and there's maybe 10 people in a house. So it's very small. And all the students are very interesting and quirky and there's a bit of a romance, but that's not really the focus of the book. But one of the things I liked about this book is Stevie. Stevie is a great character and she's a normal teenage girl, but she doesn't seem to have the angst about her appearance. I found that refreshing. She has anxiety and angst about other things in her life, but not that. She is secure in who she is. And there's a passage that stuck out to me that I'm going to read to you. It was time to ask herself something she had never seriously considered. Was she attractive? What was attractive? What did other people like? She knew what she liked, the short hair. She liked the way she looked when she narrowed her eyes because it was sharp and penetrating without being too squinty. She liked the fullness of her mouth because she was not afraid to speak up. She felt solid in the fullness of her hips. Was this what pretty was? Who knew? This was what a Stevie was anyway. So most women are sort of obsessed with their looks in some way and wanting to spit in. And I don't think that Stevie has that same concern. She doesn't have that same hang up. You know, she is more about what she knows as opposed to how she looks. The thing I didn't like about this book is that it ends without giving us the answers. So it kind of ends with a cliffhanger and you have to move on to the second book to find out. And I kind of hate it when authors do that. Although it definitely is a great way to entice people to read your next book. If you like a series, there are three in this one. So maybe that's not going to be a problem for you. And honestly, I probably will read the second one, not right away, but I am going to read the second one because I want to find out how it wraps up. And I would recommend it if you like YA and you want a fun escapist read. Cool. Sounds good. Uh, although I don't know how you're going to continue joining and doing things and juggling all these books. because. <laughs> well, once COVID has subsided, I probably won't be, honestly. I won't have nearly as much time to read. Sometimes you have a hard time juggling all those books. Those texts I get from you, I don't know how I'm going to finish this book. I know, but this particular group, I mean, it's very casual. Like I said, we don't have like a meeting date or anything. We just read it. And when we're all done, we just do a Zoom and we talk about it. It I means it's very, very chill. But yeah, I am enjoying it because this is not a genre that I used to read very much of at all. And so it's kind of fun to delve into it a little bit. 
All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to ask Jayma and Gary some top questions. We are back with Gary Mudd and Jayma Hawkins from the American Printing House for the Blind. And we're going to be asking them a couple questions as part of our top five. So the first question is, what is the top best thing about working at the American Printing House for the Blind? And I'll let you all fight each other on who's going to go first for that one. I'll go first. If I had to pinpoint one thing, and I'm a Southern girl, so that's kind of hard to do. I would say Mm -hmm. that the fellowship that goes on between departments and in employees and we all have very different directions as you can imagine prison versus customer service versus other things products but we all come together for the good of the child and you know in a in a world that we're living in today it feels good to be a part of something good We have a, I think anyway, having been here so many years, we have kind of a family atmosphere. We have a common mission, and the mission is better and bigger than we are. And I think that's important and and brings together a group of people who may not have anything in common other than working at APH. But this does make a stronger connection, I think. It's more than a paycheck. Well, and I guess, too, knowing that you're helping other people just in general. I know that Jama, like you said, with the inmates, knowing that they're helping people, that's a boost to your emotional health, I think, in general. So that that's important. And we are a nonprofit, so we don't necessarily have to worry about making money because we have fundraising, we have contracts, things like that, where we try to do the best we can with the funding we have, yeah. And about 70% of that funding comes from the federal act to promote the education of the blind. The rest of it, we have to either work with contracts or other organizations that produce Do you all ever have like fundraisers? We have a, a fundraising development, we call it, department that writes grants and we have donors throughout the country and the world actually that donate to our so, uh, mission. Your comment there about the throughout the world, do you all send items? I guess anybody, you know, no matter where they live, they could live in Australia. They could utilize the website and get products. Do you all work with other countries or is it primarily in the United States? Primarily the United States, but we work with other English speaking countries especially and we're beginning to delve into the Spanish speaking market. So we are growing in those areas. But yes, primarily the United States, but we'll, any other country who needs the products and find it useful can order from us, certainly. All right. Your next question is about traveling. So I know a lot of people, because of the pandemic, their travel plans were either canceled or vastly changed. I know for myself, 
my family, we didn't travel out of the state. And this was before the winter, right? Before things got really bad in terms of infection rates. We had visited some places in Kentucky just to try to rediscover some of the great things we have that aren't too far away. So what is one of your top Kentucky or Southern Indiana places to visit and why? I like Natural Bridge because I'm from Eastern Kentucky as a little girl. You know, we have several colleagues that come in from other states, and if they ever want to go somewhere that makes them see Kentucky, I like to take them up there because we go through the Lexington area, which is horse country, and then on up the mountain to Eastern Kentucky. I was raised on a farm, and I love to be somewhere where you do not hear any engine or any noise made by man other than a voice, but I have a, a place at Nolan Lake, in fact, I came back from there last night, that I go to that I can sit on the porch and hear nothing but nature. And that's what I crave and I love to do that. So I'll go anywhere where it's quiet. <laughs> One of the places we went, actually two places, in the summer we went to Land Between the Lakes that we had never been there before. And originally I had wanted to go out west to Yellowstone. And I determined that, you know, if I can see bison <laughs> here in Kentucky, that that's what I would do. So we took our kids out. It was great. And then in the fall, in October, we went to Cumberland Falls. We had never been there. And then we went to the Natural Arch down in Daniel Boone National Forest. So it's been really fun. I'm like you all. I like kind of get away and go where it's quiet. And so those were great places to visit. Well, thank you all again so much for working with us to, to help get this recording done. We really appreciate your time today. Glad to do it, and thank, thank you for you. asking us. Thank you for having us. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.